The Anchism Podcast, brought to you by our proud sponsor, Kixinto. As Canada's premium reseller of authentic sneakers, Kixinto offers free shipping in Canada and the USA. With a wide selection of the most exclusive Jordans, Yeezys, and other premium products, you can trust Kixinto for all your sneaker needs. Don't miss out on the latest drops and limited releases. Visit their website at www.kixinto.ca to shop now and step up your sneaker game. Today on the podcast, we have Ian Boden, a legal professional who has excelled in personal injury law and has been working in the higher education for half a decade now. His specializations also encompass professional negligence, clinical and medical matters, and industrial disease. Well, I personally feel those are really, really heavy terms and I'm someone who doesn't have a lot of knowledge about law. So it's it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, Ian. How are you doing today? I'm doing absolutely fine, Anshan. I, I actually feel like I've made it. Um, I've made it now to be on the Anshism podcast. <laughs> what more is there to achieve in life apart from being here with you today? And really looking forward to the chance to sit and have a chat with you. Well, it's really kind of you <laughs> to say that. And I am, I'm really pleased to have you because, um, you know, knowing you for... A number of years now and I remember you were one of the first people who let me speak in your lectures when I was running for the SU president mm-hmm. so and I think it was the mood court it was yes yeah you came in to see the the students the first years at that yeah. particular point and um, it was uh, it was great for them to be able to find out a little bit more about university life and the role that students play in the experience of other students being a lawyer for the last 15 years now so did you have a particular interest in law whilst growing up? It, it's a strange one to look back now. Um, that when I actually started out, I mean, my first degree isn't actually in law. My first degree is actually in business and management with marketing. And for many years, I actually explored a number of different careers. I ended up in senior management positions in further education for part of my career. I ended up as a company director for a financial services company at one point. I even, and I know you're going to be impressed with this one, Ange, looking at me right now, I was even a clothing and footwear manager for a popular (laughs) supermarket as well. Um, Not advertising this shirt just now, but... um, Yeah, I I had a lot of different careers. And the law kind of came to me due to um, a pure fluke, Um, just a moment of chance really, that I I was working for a financial services company and they wanted me to run some different projects. So one project that I ran for them involved um, events management. So for a year I ran all of the events for the Department for Transport as a strange aside really that was quite good fun travelling around the country, um, updating people on legislation. I didn't realise how important legislation would become later on. Um, As one of the projects came to an end though, um, I started doing some work to help out the, the company on the financial services side of things and they specialised in people who were in really bad debt situations where it was truly impacting upon their lives and their families' lives etc. And um, as part of that I started just um, taking the phone calls when people were ringing in at the weekend and uh, there was like a weekend rotor. But and this was when, what role were you Ooh. doing? I was a company director at the time and it was back in 2000. 
2008 and I was just trying to help out in a strange kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, but you spoke to people and you realised that you know people were in such terrible situations and you wanted to help all you can. And it was from this that I actually came across three letters that then um, became dominant in people's lives in every text message they received, which was PPI. So payment protection insurance became this thing where in many years later, I don't think many people didn't receive a text message about um, payment protection insurance and could you make a claim, that type of thing. And that became very popular sort of 2013 onwards was the, was the main sort of part. Um, interestingly, in 2008, I actually came across the fact that people were being charged these huge sums and there'd just been a case that had gone through court and in that case that had gone through court, um, somebody had been successful in getting the money back. So I, um, I sat there one evening, it was about six o'clock, and started looking through some of the files. And uh, I picked out a file for a customer I'd spoken to at the weekend and looked at their statements. And you could see how much money was being spent um, just for this insurance policy. And it was a huge sum of money and then you'd look at people I remember one client had 27 individual debts all of which included this added figure okay so um, I looked more into the case I looked more into the law and um, at that point I started a project which involved working with five solicitors in our local area and down to Manchester oh I was working at the time for a company called Spencer Hayes and um, they were quite big at the time in sort of the debt and financial services side of things Um, but yeah it was interesting that you kind of saw what people had been charged and you could see how the law could help them I needed some lawyers at the time to help though so I got the lawyers on board and we started to put some some claims together for the clients and very very quickly we started to win and it was fascinating to see how the law was able to help these people who were in very dire situations Um, it then got to the position where strangely enough that that grew even further and we actually ended up starting our own legal practice so my first experience with a legal practice was that I actually started a legal practice, which was the strangest kind of way round, really, in terms of what it would be. That was called Slater Haywood Law and was actually um, an offshoot of Spencer Hayes. So we had all of the debt clients and we just needed a solicitor. So my... um, my, um, what, What title did Bill have at the time? I'm not sure if he was chief executive. I think he might have been chief executive. Um, he had a family member who was a solicitor. So we brought in that solicitor and I trained them up in terms of what we did and what the process so, was, etc. So was your experience purely based on just working on the company or did you go through any law course at the time? No, at that time I was still just had my first degree, hadn't done anything in law as a, um, as a qualification at any point. I was in essence the business manager to the legal practice. I was okay. the person who ran the process with the lawyers doing the legal part was the idea. Was law a big interest of yours or was it like something you had to deal with or you're like, okay, I need to collect knowledge of this particular field because it's very useful? Oh yeah. For for debt collection and all those things. It it, it was a strange one, Ange, because the way the story went, it was it was simply fascinating to be able to see that I'd actually been doing lots of law, I'd read legislation, I'd looked into different acts, I'd looked into case law, and didn't realise I was learning law, but at the time it was what was needed to be able to do that job. 
it was very successful. We helped lots and lots of people recover lots and lots of money. And I was very lucky that one of the solicitors I'd worked with initially then asked if I'd like to go and join him. And at that point, I'd realised that where, obviously, it was very good to work with the solicitor in the practice that we'd started at that point, um, I kind of wanted to know the law side more. I really, really liked what we could do with the law to help people. And so it became a, um, something where I did then sign up for a course. I signed up to do what's called the Graduate Diploma in Law. So that kind of converts an existing degree into a law degree. And I spent two evenings a week down in Manchester completing that particular qualification. At the University of Law? It wasn't actually. I was at Manchester Metropolitan University okay. at that time. And during that time, I then joined law room solicitors to work with a guy who's still a very good friend to this day, Mike. And um, Mike gave me the opportunity to not just work on that one area of law that we'd set up up in Blackburn, but to start to explore other areas of law as well. And it became something which was a really, really good partnership between what we could do. So, yeah, the law came in a very strange way and uh, I then ended up managing kind of, the, again, the business management side of things um, whilst I was still completing my law qualifications and then got to the position where I'd finished my GDL. I'd then gone to the University of Law and completed my legal practice certificate and then went a step further and became a solicitor advocate just because I liked to be one one step further than the the people I'd been working with so it was it was fantastic so it was it was purely by chance there was no big dream there was no woke up one day thinking I'm going to be a lawyer there was just a lots of series of events where you could see the power of the law and how it could help did watching suits help <laughs> I think watching Suits helps every single person who wants to be a lawyer because you, you undoubtedly end up watching that TV programme thinking, I, I, I want to be Harvey. Um, me and Mike used to have a joke that he was Harvey and I was Mike. So even then it permeated what we did there as well. And it was fascinating to watch the programme and then, strangely enough, to contrast how different reality is from what happens in Suits. But yeah, it was fantastic. But yeah, it's something that you know, aspiring law students could, you know, look up to and be like, okay, I want to be the best closer in the city. Do <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's strange. I actually, as part of my teaching, use um, certain old films to teach students certain things. So, um, strangely, Ansh, um, my actual films um, that I like are really old. I like black and white films from kind of the 1940s and 50s. They're kind of my passion. And there's a film called Witness for the Prosecution. And um, it's one of my favourite films due to um, how the court case works. And the court case is just fantastically well done. Um, but we teach students advocacy as part of the programmes that we do here. And it's really good to show them how advocacy is represented in that case. So we actually use it as part of the prep. So TV can be very handy to learn from. Indeed. And uh, what are your favourite law shows? You know, something that you enjoy watching and it's a good watch. Oh, to me, to me, it's always either suits because let's face it, it's just such a good story all the way through, or it's watching something like um, Law and Order. Um, strange law and order because obviously it's in two parts and the police bit you've just got to kind of get past but the law part that follows is usually really good when they get into a courtroom but I also used to really love a program called Murder One that I don't think most people know it was the the, the strangest program because it was 24 weeks an hour a week and it told the story of one murder case 
and uh, I found it absolutely compelling viewing to watch how that one works so for everybody who's watching if you've not seen it go and watch Murder One you'll learn an awful lot about how the law works particularly in America but the advocates in that are particularly good as you became a solicitor advocate and you know you wanted to be one step further from your colleagues and it's good to have that healthy competition and it's your own personal development mm. you don't get a law degree by fluke it's a lot of it's a lot of work Absolutely. It's, um, if the law was easy, we wouldn't actually need law degrees in a strange kind of way. Um, the law has lots and lots of challenges to it, but rising to those challenges and achieving what you set out to do is actually one of the greatest achievements that I've actually had in, in my career. And um, every day I'm still very proud to be on the role of solicitors in England and Wales. It makes a really big difference. What do you feel is the transition from being in professional practice in you know providing legal advice to companies to actually teaching law what is what's mm. that transition interesting um i kind of remember on my first days when i arrived here at bolton and um i was given the classes i was going to teach and I had that moment that I imagine that most colleagues who have transitioned from professional into um, academic practice have, which is, I'm not sure what the first word's going to be. Um, and then you get to the point where you suddenly realize that you're in a position where you don't have to change too much. It seems like it's going to be a big step, but to, to use law as a great example, Law requires you to be an academic when you are in practice. You are often telling your client and explaining to your client how the law impacts upon their case. If you're a solicitor advocate, you're explaining your view of the law to a court, which again is very, very similar in terms of what it would be. When we look at how obviously you achieve at the highest levels in academia, it's about being able to critically evaluate and to look at those particular things with a critical eye. Well, that's how you become a good lawyer, because it's not about necessarily just knowing your own case. It's about anticipating the other side's case as well and understanding where their strengths might be and what points you need to challenge. So it actually prepares you really well. It still doesn't change the fact you don't know what your first word's going to be. Um, what you then realise as you get more experienced in the academic side, from my point of view, is you never know what the first word's going to be. You turn up and you provide the experience that you would want to have yourself. And um, I've always treated my students in a strange kind of way, the same way I taught my clients. So I've always seen them as being in it together. To make them prepare for the real world? Yeah, absolutely. They need to understand that those relationships that you build are something which is an absolute cornerstone of what you do in the law. There's so many aspects which involves partnerships and working with other people, be it your client, be it with your colleagues, be it with um, counsel if you're using a barrister, etc. Even the defendants in the case strangely become contacts because even though they're on the opposite side of the case, you end up working with the same people regularly. And so the better your relationships with them, the actual easier it is to be able to achieve what you're setting out to do. People are not too keen to go to the court, even if, if it's for justice, because I feel that people have certainly lost faith in the lawmakers. Mm -hmm. in the justice makers, in the government. So how difficult is it to say you have a client mm -hmm. who has a strong case, but they do not want to go to the court? Is yeah. that a challenge that is very common or...? Absolutely. Um, 
It's a strange one, really. That um, obviously we set up a legal advice centre here at the University of Bolton, and we set that up four years ago, and it's been um, monumentally successful. How the, many people have we? We're now approaching seven hundred clients that we've helped over that period of time, and we've I had pro yeah, and we've had probably about. 150 or so students who've gone through the centre who've absolutely done us proud you know without them the centre can never be a success but when you look at the 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 actual role that we perform I've got a strange dual role because I run the legal advice centre but I'm also a committee member of the local law society and um, we have a regular committee meeting and um, as part of it my colleagues there upon the committee very kindly added an agenda item which is the University of Bolton so it gives me a, a platform to be able to speak to all of the local solicitors about the work that we do. Part of that has often been about the work of the Legal Advice Centre, and we of course share how popular the centre's been. The strange part is that you actually find out when you meet with these solicitors that they would happily provide their advice for free in an awful lot of circumstances. Um, solicitors provide drop-in sessions for free quite regularly and it was very interesting to see how they couldn't understand how they offer the same service that we do and yet people were engaging with ours and willing to wait many weeks and months for an appointment yet were unwilling to visit a local solicitor who was willing to provide that help. So it echoes the point that you've mentioned here about that fear factor. There's definitely some sort of fear of crossing a threshold. Now I recognised that when I was in practice. Um, the more barriers you put up between you and your clients, the more obstacles that your client has to get through. So when we set up the Legal Advice Centre, we tried to remove those obstacles as much as we possibly could. So where we set it up, how we set it up, the absolutely fantastic team. Yeah, and that starts with everybody. You know, I've been very lucky to work at the um, Institute of Management, now McCulloch Building here, where the team who are working that centre every day absolutely have done a, a wonderful job in helping the centre to be a success. The moment somebody walks through the door and they have Christine facing them who welcomes them, makes them feel comfortable but professionally dealt with. Steve and Carlos and the work that they do, you know, absolutely a professional yeah, from. But at the same time to just deal with people as people in an environment where they could walk in and they would feel nervous. But as soon as they'd actually had that first word before they met me or they met any of the actual team, they were straight into a position where it made a difference. So we actually took that model all the way back through our process. So every email we send is not written as a dear Mr. So-and-so. It's hi and then their name. We make it accessible. We make it so that in the same way that we're in the, the process with our students, we're in to help our clients as well. And I think that broke down so many barriers that helped the centre to build to the success it has today. 100%. And I think it helps we are a university rather than a legal practice as well. 100%. I, and I feel that personally, Ian, that you have grown a lot as an academic and I think all the four years that you, five years that you have taught the students here, you have won numerous awards, by, yeah. you know, given by the students. And I think uh, from not knowing what your first words would be to be successful. And I know that people say that awards are not the right way to measure someone's success. But in your case, it is, mm. you know, over the years, students have loved you. And uh, personally, I've had feedback of how 
the law school has worked over the years uh, when you have been a part of it bevelism and all the people involved ike everyone's loved by the students so yeah. creating that atmosphere for the students is uh, how how important is that for you and how much do these awards mean to you um the awards are incredibly humbling um obviously they they're rewarded by by the students union and as you've mentioned they are led by the students themselves in terms of what happens um winning the awards is always absolutely um a, a really nice moment i think the main thing for me though is strangely enough it's it's the nomination um whoever wins is always going to be a worthy winner in those awards because if a student in the middle of all of their studies with all of their assessments and everything else going on in student life is willing to take the time to fill in a nomination for somebody that is a really big step that will always be hugely appreciated and so the thing for me about those awards was it was lovely to win that would that's always great and I'm I'm very very um honored to have been able to receive such a wide variety of awards whilst I've been here The thing that I always go back to though is that on the certificate it contains the actual words of the nomination and those words mean so much because we are here doing a job we are here trying to do it to the best of our ability sometimes what you're trying to do or trying to achieve doesn't come across it doesn't always work out in the way that you hope it will but you are in the position where for a student to recognize that you're trying to give them the very best you can and to try to set them on the right path um is lovely and to me actually it's a very nice one that um in the law department the the biggest success we've seen recently is the number of students moving into employed roles within the legal profession and strangely that often feels like that means that everything was worthwhile and um, we took a wonderfully practical direction in the school of law and taught people about not just what the law was but how the law actually is used in practice on a day-to-day basis and to see students not only grasping that but then being able to not only apply for those roles with confidence but to get them and then to be in a position where they're being successful in legal practice that really does mean the world because it's exactly what we want we want bolton students out there doing the the very best they can and helping a lot of people you have a lot of experience in clinical negligence and and i know that there are a number of injury lawyers clinical lawyers you know who look after those things do you feel that people know now how to abuse that system of getting the best deal for them even if they're not hurt do they sometimes do things deliberately and you know manipulate the law there are unfortunately occasions where the temptations that exist within the law to not always tell the truth are a sad fact really of working as a lawyer um i would say that clinical negligence is not a range of matters where that's something i ever saw um clinical negligence was always a passion because it was always the area of law where the person who was the victim in the in the particular case usually wasn't involved actively 
in what happened. If you've gone for a surgical procedure, as you can imagine, you're not even conscious when the actual negligence occurs. And so those clients I always empathised with greatly because even if you're in a car and somebody runs into the back of you, you are still an active part of what happened, even if you did nothing wrong. If you are a patient in a hospital, it's not quite the same situation. True. But when it comes to looking at this, I did have experience of clients where the the situation wasn't um, as it was made out. And uh, I've got to admit, it's something which you have to prepare yourself for, but you also can't prepare yourself for. So I'll tell you the real story, actually. We, um, at Law Room, we were able to start to get involved with um, cases that involved um, holiday sickness. So where people had been to an all-inclusive hotel and had unfortunately contracted um, food poisoning, gastroenteritis, that type of thing. And it all started this with one gentleman who happened to live on the same road as the legal practice, who called him one day and just said, I'd like to speak to a solicitor. And um, I always liked to go and see the people who walked through the door. I always thought you learnt a lot if you were the person who didn't know what was going to happen next about yourself. How did you react to it and what did you do? And you learnt a lot of the skills you needed as a lawyer. And um, this gentleman, James, um, came in to see us and he was a chap in his... I'd probably estimate late 60s, early 70s. And um, the reason I, I still remember him so fondly is that um, he'd been on holiday to Egypt at the time and he'd been away for 10 days and he explained to me that his wife had passed um, a few years before but he still liked to have holiday every year. So even though he was on his own, he chose to still go and explore parts of the world he hadn't seen. And I've got to admit, I was sat there ranch and uh, I kind of looked at him and thought, I kind of want to be this guy in the future. I love the idea that he will, that I could be in that sort of stage of my life and still wanting to explore and still wanting to see new things. And um, to hear his story then, that um, on day three of his holiday, he'd become unwell. He had been confined to his room. Um, and they'd sent a doctor who tried to give him injections that he didn't know what they were. He was worried about whether they would allow him to fly back home again and whether he'd be able to make his flight when it was. And instead of it being this holiday where it's this nice um, chap trying to explore areas, he got to explore nothing. He'd mentioned to me that he liked making those friends on holiday. So he said, um, I, I never really mind. I always find somebody to talk to. He'd spent virtually his whole holiday in his room on his own. And it was kind of, you know, it kind of got to me in terms of that this is a chap who's doing everything right, but somebody let him down somewhere. Mm. When he got back, he was contacted by Public Health England and had to go through a series of tests in regards to the salmonella he'd contracted anyway. Um, we took on his case and um, we were able to get to a successful outcome for him and it was fantastic. And then we ended up, we'd never done these cases before, but we then took on a few more cases in that area and it built and built and built. And we got to the stage at one point where we had thousands of cases. And at that point, there was a day and the day came around whereby um, we put a case through and the client had told us all about their tales of woe. And at the same time, though, um, they'd flown back with the airline. I remember it was Thomas Cook. And um, when they'd flown back, they'd been given a questionnaire to fill in on the plane with the opportunity to win, I think it was £500 worth of holiday vouchers. I'm sure our viewers today may have been on a plane and offered something similar in terms of an enticement to fill in a questionnaire. 
One of the questions was very, very direct. Have you experienced any sickness during your holiday? And the person had ticked no. And had then brought a claim against Thomas Cook for illness on their holiday. Is it the same guy that went to Egypt? Uh, no, 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 no. His case was resolved and he was absolutely the most genuine client you could okay. ever have. This was many, many, this was actually probably a good two years down the line okay. from when his case had been resolved. And it's genuinely shocking because you, you, you take on your clients, you take them at the word, you are there to provide a service for them. And you are there because you are a custodian of the law who understands that the law is there to support people who had been like my original client. Do you, do you feel that when people lie to their lawyers, mm. it sets back the lawyer a bit and you, know, you as a lawyer feel that, okay, I am preparing the case in a yeah. certain way to make sure you get the best mm. decision made by the law system. And you feel part of it, you feel complicit. You're in a situation whereby you're trying to do your best to help people. And like I say, going back to the original client, you're trying to help people who are like that, who've done nothing wrong. And then to find people trying to get the cost of their holiday back or some compensation based upon a ruse. Really big. Yeah, which they had already themselves already provided the evidence against was it's a real jolt i still remember to this day receiving the information do you as a lawyer are you bound to sort of fight those cases if they're even lying how does it work what happens is there there a client lawyer agreement before you sit down absolutely the part of the agreement you have with your client is that the client provides you with the information and you take their case forward based upon that However, that relationship between a client and a solicitor is one where it has to be based on the ongoing trust between the parties. And if that trust is lost, then at any point, so the the client can decide to end their relationship with the solicitor. If you feel the solicitor's not doing the job you want them to do or doing it quickly enough or not representing your interests, you can step away from that agreement stating that the relationship has broken down it applies the same the opposite way. So we ended up then having to contact that client and basically confirm that we were no longer able to take their case forward as evidence had come to light. Unfortunately, this then became more regular. We started to see more clients coming through with the same situation and up to that point it hadn't occurred. And it was it was something which led to us in the end taking the decision to really restrict and then stop altogether our work within that field because there were simply too many people who thought they were onto this. Now, strangely enough, there were some very, very good actions taken afterwards where um, individuals whose cases had gone to court with other solicitors, we never had any who were in this boat, but they'd gone with other solicitors and solicitor continued to press the case forward or perhaps only found out really late in the day that the case was based upon an untruth. Um, what happened in those cases was that the, um, the court actually awarded um, against the client. So the client would be in a position where they would then have to pay the costs 
of the defendant in the case. So by bringing up the ruse, trying to gain financially, Is that an yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill oh, absolutely. No, no, it wasn't an official bill. It was just the courts, in terms of costs. The, the, the rule in, in England and Wales is that um, the, the loser pays. Now, if you lose because you've told a lie, then the court will absolutely insist on you paying the other side's costs. Absolutely, yeah. So, in the end, it actually started to rectify itself further down the line after we'd come out of that particular sector, just simply based upon the fact that there was a position there where you could see that the courts were willing to, to charge people where they had done this. And hopefully it then became self-rectification. But it still doesn't change the yeah. fact that you still feel very let down by those people that you you put a lot of time and effort into. I mean, when we close those cases, we have done everything that we should do. We just simply don't get paid. Uh, we don't get anything back for our part of the process, which I can imagine lots of people feeling really sympathetic for lawyers not getting paid right now. People don't think so. Yeah, no. <laughs> I don't think they do. Have a very bad image of lawyers in their minds. They do, uh, and uh, you know there can be various reasons for that. Maybe they had a bad run-in with the legal system. Maybe they had a bad representation. Mm -hmm. It can be a number of things. Uh, but Ian, you being in professional practice for 15 years, say you have got the biggest case of your life and the and the situation with that money is that you cannot withdraw mm -hmm. so how do you go forward with those cases where you're like okay i have been given the fattest paycheck mm. of my life yeah i am winning the case for the client mm -hmm. who's actually ethically morally wrong yeah but in the eyes of law i am defending him how does that work um your integrity is not worth any money so in those positions, it's actually really simple. Um, a, a lawyer simply makes an application to the court to come off record, usually using the, the very um, unusual phrase that um, they are stepping away due to being professionally embarrassed. Right. Which is an unusual phrase when you think about it, but is it's it a really good one. Yeah, um, if you to need to, if you need to step away, you know, often you can be in a position where professional embarrassment can cover conflicts of interest. It can cover um, non-disclosure. Yeah, issues that come up where sometimes um, you find that you can't represent a certain client due to a previous relationship with the defendant in the case, that type of thing. Or it can be that you find out that there is fundamental dishonesty in part of the case. But, does but you that would always step away. But Ian, does that not make the case weaker for them? It, it Potentially, yeah, but the, the courts are very good at understanding that professional embarrassment covers a multitude of sins. And they would simply understand that uh, they would simply state, okay, you are removed from the record, and then they, they would turn to the client to ask if they had engaged further representation. And then, if they've engaged further representation, then you simply keep your counsel because as well as duties in regards to things like conflict of interest, we have duties in regards to confidentiality as well, which are built into our code of conduct. So um, even though we know that there may be something fundamental wrong with that case, our duty of confidentiality, unless it's you know, um, the most serious of matters in regards to um, somebody's um, health, well-being, life, um, something to do with the national interest or national security, you are very, very unusual to step over your bounds of confidentiality in any case, except in the most exceptional circumstances.
Right. I think we, we have to look at it that you win some, you lose some. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's just the way it goes as a lawyer. You you never um, spend too long celebrating your wins, and you certainly don't spend too long um, suffering your losses. Mm-hmm. But you, you do need to just simply be in a position where um, if you do your job correctly, that case may not have worked out, there'll be the next case, and then you move forward and put your very best into that one. So, in your experience, Ian, how... Do you see significant challenges? Do you, are there days when you're like, I really don't know why I'm doing this? And are there days like, I'm glad I'm doing this? Um, or is it every day is the same? You wake up and you're like, I'm, I'm grateful for being a student of law because you yeah. might be an advocate, you can be a solicitor, you can be a judge but you never stop being a student of law. There's kind of a multitude of things in that one. Um, Firstly, the the last point about being a student of law. Um, The reason law is so much fun is that I I could write a lecture today and plan to deliver it tomorrow. And it might not be relevant. The law might change in the meantime. I might have missed a case that suddenly changes a point. And that's wonderful because um, when you're teaching law to be in a position where you have to still think on your feet in the same way you do in practice, to be up to date, to ensure that you know the case law that's that's gone through in that intervening period is incredibly important, but also incredibly refreshing. You never feel like you're delivering the same content that you've delivered previously. It's updated every step of the way. In terms of getting up in the morning, that's, that's a, an interesting one, Ange, because um, I genuinely have to say that I've never had a moment where I have not enjoyed coming into work since I started here five years ago. Um, I'm incredibly fortunate that I've worked with some exceptional people in the School of Law as colleagues, but I'm also incredibly fortunate that I've been able to work with um, so many students who have achieved so many things that they don't know they can achieve at the start. And so every day you're kind of looking at those students and you you, you can be in any class and see a, just a point drop with somebody and suddenly they're absolutely clear. Actually, I had it earlier today uh, to complete an assessment earlier today with a student who's on the LLM with Solicitors Qualifying Exam Programme, which is my programme. And they were completing an assessment today and they walked in and said that they didn't know, they weren't sure they knew any of the answers in terms of what they needed to do. And it was a um, an oral examination today. And to get to the end and to be able to tell them that they'd actually identified the correct answer on every single question. And then to say, why did you not think that you knew that? And to then see the student actually work their way through from being really doubtful about their knowledge to suddenly, actually, I do know this. And those kind of moments that happen are almost irreplaceable. I mean, I loved legal practice and I loved working with my clients, but you never get that same thing. You have a a relationship with somebody usually for one case, sometimes more than one, but usually just one matter. You Mm -hmm. you know, let's face it, with some of our younger students, you see them truly develop in terms of what they do. Um, When you, you look at some of our mature students, they often have so much more doubt when they start, but they quickly begin to see that they can do this and you know it's all about making sure there's that support and recognizing where people have made a big step it's it's not about everybody who gains a first it's Some, about just yeah looking at each individual you know each individual takes their own journey and some people's individuals they will have the most pleasing journey possible 
to simply get to, to passing or just above passing in terms of what they do. But from where they started to get to that point is an absolutely amazing achievement in a really difficult subject. So there are challenges, there always are. There are things that are sent to trials in regards to what we do. But at the same time, the skills of a lawyer and the skills of uh, an academic lawyer are to rise to those challenges. The law changes, you adapt. Your students have an issue, you find a way to help. The programme um, has to evolve and change. Your modules have to be rewritten or redeveloped to fit with a new direction. This year we wrote an entirely new module based upon advice from some of the legal practices that we work with. We found a way as a team and responded to that and delivered an absolutely superb module that helped our students to understand commercial awareness and the fact that law firms are businesses. And it's really nice to have those challenges that continue to keep me on my toes. And so I've got through five years. Um, I would have happily been looking to do 15 more and still enjoyed the same experience. First of all, I'm glad that you have had that experience mm. being an academic lawyer of empowering students. Now, Ian, there are good lawyers and there are bad lawyers. Now, you know, the good ones are the ones who make people who are often wrong win as well. You know, someone might have done something mischievous, but they have the right lawyer who can get them out of trouble. Mm -hmm. And then there are people who question the law system for that. Does the justice system always serve justice or is depends on your lawyer? Very interesting question. I've got to admit, that's your best Michael Parkinson question yet, Ansh, okay? Um, the way I would look at it is that um, the, the, probably the, the lawyers who suffer the most in terms of perhaps public ridicule type of thing uh, fall into two categories. There are those who are perhaps engaged with what you would see as ambulance chasing type of things. Those people who uh, perhaps take on those personal injury type cases, those adverts we see on TV. And there are those who defend um, people who are charged with criminal offences. And they might be morally wrong. Yeah, well, this is the interesting part, yeah. You know, when you look at every single terrible crime that's ever been committed, somebody still stood up and defended that person in court. So think about any of the, the, you know, the worst offenders you can imagine, and there's been plenty of them in recent times. They still had legal representation. Now, in terms of the... I'll take those as two groups. So the accident one's really easy. Um, if somebody um, goes out in their car one day and somebody um, runs into them and causes them an injury, the person who was driving the car did nothing wrong at the front. The person who ran into them did everything that was wrong. And the way the law works is to only put you back into a position um, that you were when you set off that day. So the law's about restitution, it's not about punishment in that regard. So if you think about it from um, uh, an individual's point of view, there are lots of news stories that talk about lawyers doing this and lawyers doing that. It's amazing how quickly that changes when perhaps you're the person who's been in the accident and you suddenly realise that you don't have the car to go and pick up the kids because it's damaged and needs to be repaired. 
you don't feel quite the same physically as you felt the morning when you set off. And that might have various different impacts upon you. You might not be able to follow your normal routine, which could involve, for example, going to the gym or playing a sport or something like that. And that's part of your social group and your, that kind of coping network that we all have in terms of what we do. And that disrupts that cycle that you live exactly and yeah that's irreparable damage well and that's the thing the the lawyers who take on those cases are simply trying to get people back to the position they were when somebody did something wrong to them right so then let's look at the criminal ones let's look at that particular side of the coin um my view's always been very very clear on this one that um that actual person who stands up to defend sometimes the absolutely indefensible is the most important person in the justice process. Okay. Because you can only have a safe conviction of somebody if they have had the most robust and expertly delivered defense put forward as possible. So you're saying that no matter how indefensible a person is, yeah. they deserve to go through the justice yeah. system. because only if they are then convicted is it a safe conviction if you didn't allow them that absolute top level defense then you are leaving yourself wide open to lots of people being able to potentially walk free on appeal mm-hmm. you know i didn't have this provided to me i didn't have this opportunity to be defended properly mm-hmm. is a is a technical thing but that process is there to protect us all i mean there's many people who are accused of the most heinous crimes who are actually perfectly innocent and we've seen lots of different circumstances where we've had miscarriages of justice or where it's been found out later that the person first accused actually wasn't the guilty person at all you know mistakes had been made as parts of investigations so even though that person is standing up defending somebody who may be very very guilty of the offense and may be absolutely worthy of the punishment that's due it is only going to be a safe conviction if they have the most robust and expertly put together defense possible so that when the jury make their decision they're making it based upon the fact that the evidence still confirms a conviction not because there wasn't a defense provided no it absolutely makes sense that everyone deserves to go through the right process yeah sometimes but I am not an expert in law. Sometimes I feel in when I look at cases like someone there was a case now someone who was illegally streaming the Premier League has been jailed for 35 years or yeah. been given a fine of I don't know how much and then there was a case of someone who committed a heinous crime mm-hmm. but they have just been given jail for 10 odd years. Yeah. Now in cases like those common people like us who do not have an mm-hmm. understanding about the law Yeah. and the justice system how do we put our trust in the mm-hmm. justice system in the so called justice system yeah and how do we believe that the justice system always mm. serves justice and it's fair enough to say that laws made by human beings and us as human beings tend to make mistakes but those yeah. mistakes cost people their lives absolutely it's a really difficult one i Fortunately, normally in these matters Ansh, I would turn to my colleagues in crime and criminal justice who are absolutely superb at talking about the nature of restorative justice, sentencing guidelines and how they apply etc. Um answering this more just as a personal view. Um I can only agree with you. When when we actually look at the 
tariffs that are handed down when people are sentenced for certain crimes. It is often interesting to read in the judgment. The judge looked to say often that they wish they could have applied a different sentence, but they can't because of the guidelines that are provided. But there is also another side to this, which is that when we look at our penal system, um, prison is often seen as a means of punishment yeah but it it should be seen as a rehab program it should be the rehabilitation of the offender it shouldn't be that one person is kind of cast out for life based upon what could have been and i do emphasize the could have been there a mistake made due to circumstances at the time due to um inexperience due to immaturity due to not being aware of consequences that type of thing i mean the classic example being um the young people who get involved unfortunately in the drugs trade as a great example or involved in gangs and then involved in the violence that's often associated with those let's face it if we looked at that as a in a penalty terms as something where that person is kind of finished for life then we're literally throwing away a young person who could potentially be rehabilitated into something else. But I do agree with you that when you look at certain offences when they're compared in the news, it's a very easy headline to write and a very appropriate one to write. But there is an awful lot that goes into trying to create a model that simply does try to punish offenders in a way which is appropriate. It's not always going to be perfect. That is true. And uh, in the bigger cases that we're talking about, media has a big role to play they already make the decision they already know who who's the who should be convicted mm. who made the mistakes and as a lawyer how frustrating is it to see that you know media is just out there sometimes not telling facts yeah telling opinions of other people and that does disrupt the proceedings mm. of a case because the when the public things that you are in the wrong they already have an opinion and it's very difficult mm-hmm. to win against the public vote absolutely the um, the court of public opinion is unfortunately a very harsh one in regards to these things and i uh, i actually teach as part of one of my classes that um, we look into the circumstances involving cliff richard from a few years ago where obviously the BBC had let the, uh, sorry, the local police had let the BBC know that they were going to be searching his premises. And when the police arrived, the news crews were already there filming. And of course, there was no charge. There was no formal arrest and there was certainly no conviction. And it led to the potential for the law to change. So, yes, what the, was the case, if you don't mind? It was about um, historical sexual abuse, alleged that he had um, been okay. involved in. Um, and yet there was not a shred of evidence to support that view. But what it led to, I mean, the, the law, it constantly has to evolve and constantly is change as we mentioned informing Cliff oh yeah or the bbc first that this is yeah. going to happen absolutely it's a hundred percent wrong um, which brings you back to your point about faith in justice and the systems and the the arms of the state in regards to these things but the way i have to look at it is you have to you have to look at mistakes made and then look at the, the direction that it goes and to see for example um uh, cliff um visiting the House of Commons and petitioning the relevant select committees for changes in the law in regards to the anonymity of the accused was really interesting to see how that debate then 
actually circulated again in the media. So the media had done something wrong, but there was then the opportunity for his rather incredibly unfortunate case to end up in a position whereby it opened up debate to say, should we have a change in the law here? And then we realised that the challenges, you know, we you, you have on the one side people who are falsely accused, which and they have the issue of clearing their name due to what's been in the media. But then we have the media being incredibly helpful in other stories. You know, looking at the Jimmy Savile situation, the incredibly brave first person who came forward, the report of them coming forward brought the second person forward. Could you tell which us then brought a the bit third more person. about the Jimmy Savile case? Yeah, again, it was historic sexual abuse, so it was a very similar um, situation in regards to what had happened. Okay. And we were in the was position... Was he alleged and was he convicted And no, unfortunately, he'd passed away, so never faced justice in regards to what was undoubtedly the crimes that he had committed over many decades in regards to utilising his position of power as a celebrity which enabled him access to people in lots of different settings, be it in TV studios, in radio studios, um, as part of his TV programmes, but also he used to visit hospitals and children's charities, and they also became situations where he abused individuals at that time. The media helped there, though, to actually expose everything that had happened. And when we look at those two points, it creates an almost impossible situation. We don't release somebody's story and their their name, then we don't get the opportunity for other people to come forward who can corroborate. If we do release the name and it turns out to be something which it doesn't have foundation, then unfortunately, as we say, we end up with people whose name is smeared in the media. And unfortunately, our laws are not fantastic at then redressing the balance. We as common people have a distrust because of stories you hear about influential people getting away yes. with loads of things that they do. Mm, that's true. And... Uh, when you think that people can just toy with the justice system, with the law system, with the judiciary, you feel really disheartened. And I think that is one of the biggest reasons why people do not want to engage. Yeah. And if they can resolve it out of the court, mm. that's what they prefer. Absolutely. It's a similar situation with the cost of court cases these days. When you look at, for example, a, a matter of a divorce as an, e as an easy oh, example, Lord. the costs involved in bringing in um, legal representation and going through the courts is exponentially higher than two people trying to find a way to resolve it themselves. Now, you may not get everything you are strictly entitled to if you trade between two individuals. But you will still, um, in the vast, vast majority of cases, be financially better off by not engaging the full um, operation of the law in matters such as that. Do you think that sometimes the law is very orthodox and needs changing with the modern days, mm. problems with the modern culture uh, in the current scenario? It's a very interesting one, Ange. I do think the law does an excellent job via the system that exists in England and Wales, where we have, um, obviously, the, the, the government put forward bills, they become law via Parliament, and they are then interpreted by the courts. And it's that interpretation that provides wonderful flexibility. Um, judges can take things in different directions, and over the years, as many law students will know, there are those key decisions in cases which take the law in whole 
whole new directions and that those whole new directions are part of the growth and evolution of the law. At the same time, the law's trying to, as we've indicated already as part of our conversations, is trying to make things right that are often impossible to square. You, you can't have both of them equally right. So we end up with lots of situations in the law where the law's having to choose between two people, where in certain circumstances the law is on both sides but they have to choose which one is more right than the other. And so I don't think you can ever have perfection in those systems. It's got to be a case-by-case -case basis. And sometimes we get it right, and sometimes we don't. And that's the sad reality Absolutely. of everything Absolutely. in life. Sadly so. And Ian, in your career as a solicitor, advocate, law lecturer, with the experience that you have amassed over... 15 years in this field what's your advice to a young chap to a young person who wants to pursue a career mm -hmm. but are very skeptical of making a decision mm -hmm. uh, for someone who's a young person and has lost their sort of will and mm -hmm. their belief in the system what okay. would your advice be It Everybody in life needs to find where their niche is going to be and where they're going to fall. It's, it's an interesting one with law because it's, it's, it's never going to be an easy pathway. But the law is incredibly rewarding when you get through those qualifications. And then in practice, it will constantly challenge you. Every day you need to come up with a new angle on something that you're working on. No two cases are ever the same. So even if you tried tactic A on the first case, you can't use tactic A necessarily on the second. You've got to find the unique angle that's in there. So if you like analyzing problems, if you like trying to find a solution where it might not immediately be apparent, if you like working with people, if you're interested in business or if you're interested in justice or you're interested in human rights, the law is such a diverse area as well. The way it tends to work in law is that you're expected to experience a number of different fields because they make you a better lawyer and they find where your strengths are going to be and also where you really rise to those challenges. What do you think, Ian? Is money a good motivation for young people? <laughs> Let's face it, law is... Um, is a traditional occupation which is very well established and can be incredibly financial rewarding. But I would encourage anybody who, who's watching and listening to be in the position where they actually look wider than that. Um, law's a kind of mini superpower. It's the ability to do something that not everybody can do. It's the ability to use knowledge and experience and the skills you've ha you have to help so many people. Um, we were very lucky here that when we, we taught that new module I mentioned earlier on commercial awareness, that the very first class was actually taught by a partner from Shoesmith Solicitors, one of the largest firms of solicitors in the UK. And that, that individual was happy to give up her time to come and actually share her knowledge with students who were during the second year programme here at the University of Bolton. And that's the type of thing that I would encourage people with the law to think about. Once you've got those skills, you, you have your little mini cape, you have your little mini superpower that you've got, it's nice to be able to use it for those purposes. And you can really, really help people to be able to get past the most difficult situations 
situations in their lives because rest assured nobody normally goes to a lawyer because things have gone right they tend to go to a lawyer because something has gone wrong and that lawyer is there to help them so cast your net wide help as many people as you can think about your community think about the people close to you and use that superpower to help as many as you can <laughs>